few weeks ago, we started our look at the I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the Gospel of John as he testifies to who he is and to what he does and how he operates in our lives. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the statement that Jesus made in John chapter 10, starting with verse 11, where Jesus tells us, where he says, I am the good shepherd. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, John chapter 10, starting with verse 11, and I'm going to read down to verse 18 of uh, John chapter 10. This is what it says in that portion of Scripture. John chapter 10, starting with verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to spend some time today looking at it together and meditating on these truths and thinking about what You're revealing to us in a portion of Scripture like this. Lord, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to read Your words and to hear the things that You spoke and to apply these truths to our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that You'd help us to put all other distractions aside and all the things that typically weigh our minds down, that we would put those things in a, in a separate place for a little while, that we could focus on You and focus on what You're teaching us through Your Word. So we pray that You'd prepare our minds and our hearts to receive these truths, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again, and I know that many of you will be able to identify with this statement, but leadership always sounds really glamorous up until the point where you actually get to try your hand at the process of leading people. It can be very challenging. And one of the things that I've noticed by observation is that leaders that, that I have felt blessed by or leaders that I have felt really did a good job in their role of leadership, they tended to cultivate a heart of service, a servant's heart. That's what they cultivated, that's what they communicated, that's what they demonstrated, that's how they led. That's, in fact, the essence of what real leadership is, isn't it? Real leadership, good leadership, godly leadership is servant leadership. That's the mindset that needs to go uh, into it. And if you've ever served in a role of leadership, I'm sure that you've probably been able to testify that some seasons are easier and some seasons are harder. So there's some seasons where you deal with um, just a lot of calamity or criticism or complaints or just different things of that nature. 
And then other seasons, you go through stretches where it seems like compliments are ready and, uh, and plentiful, and, and uh, it seems like an up-season. It kind of goes back and forth. But basically, regardless of the season, if you're serving in a role of leadership that the Lord's called you to serve, you press on in the midst of it, mindful of the Lord's calling, with a sense of joy over the privilege that He's given you to do so. And I was reminded of the essence of that, that mindset of servant leadership, in a conversation that I had just a couple weeks ago with a good friend of our family. Uh, leadership could be very, very difficult in a lot of contexts, but imagine if you worked in a context where you were teaching in a school full of children that primarily were there because they have a history of violence and criminal activity. Do you imagine that that might be a difficult context to operate in? on a daily basis. Oh, we have a good friend, my wife and I have a good friend who teaches in that kind of context. And the children that she teaches, the teens that she teaches, actually the, the, her students go from, I think she said, from age 13 all the way up to 21 because there's some that, that uh, that's when they fully age out of the system. So she has students that, that go up into their early 20s. But in addition to some of the criminal things that she deals with, or that they deal with, I guess, or have experienced, these students also tend to have a habit of showing great disrespect for authority. So that authority can be teachers, the authority could be uh, really any adult that has a role of authority in their life. That's kind of their history. They show disrespect for them, typically. Uh, in her context, weapons are typically confiscated. That's not even something that surprises anyone anymore. They just have learned that that's an issue that they deal with in the context of their school. Children are removed out of the classroom because of violent outbursts and, and threats that are made against others. And she said that when you enter into the building, everybody has to pass through metal detectors and you're checked over by security before you're able to enter in because real danger is present and they've learned they don't have an option not to scan these children as they come through. But even in the midst of that, so you would look at that and you would say, okay, it sounds like a pretty dangerous and frightening context to try and operate in. Her students have learned to love her and her students have learned to trust her. So I was asking her a few questions about what she did and, and how she operates. And basically she said, all right, I very quickly realized when I started serving there that many of the students that I deal with, they rarely feel loved. They rarely feel trusted. They rarely feel appreciated in any context of their life outside of the school context. And even at times in the school context, they don't really feel those things either. So she decided to greet them by name with a smile at the metal detectors every morning. So as they come in and as they get scanned, she's right there. She greets them with a smile. She even greets them with a hug. And, uh, and she said, you know, I decided that that's how I'm going to approach this. She also made the decision to, to be transparent with them and to be real with them instead of conveying a hard or an aloof kind of edge as she was trying to lead them because many of the people in their life felt like they had to convey that kind of edge toward them to maybe try and keep these kids in line. But she thought, you know, I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to try and be more authentic. I'm going to try and be more real. I'm going to try and be more genuine. And I'm just going to show them love and I'm going to show them appreciation. And I'm going to, I'm going to do that every day and I'm going to do my best to learn their names. And what's happened over the past few years as she's been working in that context is that in time, She's earned the love of these students, and she's earned the respect of these students, and she's earned their trust. And her leadership 
is something that these students consider a bright spot in very difficult lives. Her leadership, the opportunity to be in her classroom context, the opportunity to interact with her in a hallway is something that they've learned to look forward to. They appreciate it. They love her because she has shown sacrificial love to them. And I bring that up, and I was thinking about it because it was a recent conversation, but I also think it's the essence of many of the things that Jesus was talking about when you look at John chapter 10, and uh, when, you, when you pick up here at verse 11 where we started at today, because ultimately what we know about Christ is that He is the ultimate leader who is worthy of our love and our respect and our trust. And in this portion of Scripture, He demonstrates the way He leads by referring to Himself as the Good Shepherd. That's what he calls himself in this passage, the good shepherd. And he shows just how far he's willing to go to love and protect the sheep who are his own. Now, one of the things that Jesus demonstrates in this portion of Scripture when you look at verse 11, and I'll reread this in just a moment, is that he lays down his life for his sheep. Let me reread verse 11. Jesus says this. And again, consider this. This is a statement of divinity when he would make these I am statements. But he says, I am the good shepherd. And then he says this, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now when you look at the totality of Scripture, when you're looking through the Old Testament, is it speaking prophetically about the Messiah? When you're looking through the New Testament and see the things that Jesus said and did, and then how he's described in Paul's letters and in the general letters and the books coming forward after the Gospels, in many places in Scripture the Messiah is portrayed through the imagery of a shepherd. The Messiah is portrayed as a shepherd. He's the one who rescues. He's the one who leads. He's the one who comforts and cares for his sheep. He's the one who risks his life to, to grant life and to preserve the life of his sheep. And that's the kind of imagery that Jesus starts using here in this particular portion of Scripture as he describes himself as the good shepherd. He also shows that he's set apart from less devoted leaders, and we'll develop that thought in just a few moments. But here, Jesus explained that he is the good shepherd. That's what he calls himself here. Now, it's one thing to call yourself something like that verbally, to use that title verbally, but, it, but the sincerity of that claim, you're going to call yourself the good shepherd. The sincerity of that claim can only be demonstrated by action. And Jesus explained the kind of action he was prepared to take, and in fact, the kind of action he intended to take and did take. Jesus stated that the day would come when he would lay down his life for the sheep. That's what he said. The good shepherd, what does he do? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So a leader or a shepherd who would be willing to go to lengths like that to protect his sheep is certainly someone who gets my attention, and certainly someone who gets my admiration. And this is how Jesus was describing himself in this particular role as he's using this term. Saying, I'm the good shepherd. This is how you know I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's how he describes himself in his role there. Life is precious. And I think that that in many respects is an understatement. But life is precious. And I have to tell you, you know, throughout the course of my life, I have experienced the sorrow of family members that I was very close with passing away. And I would suspect that most, if not all of us in this room, can think back to the passing away, a season where, where people we love, where people we cared about, passed away. It's a pain that you learn 
to adjust to, but it's also a pain that changes you. It changes you in the sense that, that, that you think about those people that you miss frequently. I can tell you that I think about the people that, uh, that the Lord blessed my life with, the family members and, and friends that have passed away at this point, um, every day. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about these close family members uh, that have died. They died natural deaths, like we all do. And, but here's the thing, none of them died on my behalf. Now, I'm confident that for many of them, that if there were circumstances that demanded that, they probably would have. You know, when I think about some of my close family members that passed away, I think about them and I think, yeah, that's probably a family member uh, that would have died on my behalf and I would have died on their behalf. But circumstances didn't demand that. Um, and so, you know, that's not what happened, right? Yet, you look at a portion of Scripture like this where Jesus is describing His role as Good Shepherd. And then we know the, the story as it progresses and we discover that, yes, indeed, Jesus did die for us. So it wasn't just theory He's talking about. This wasn't just a possibility or a remote option. This is, in fact, what he did. Jesus, when I look at this portion of Scripture, personally speaking, I need to look at this and say, okay, I'm reading his words here, and I need to recognize, yes, Jesus died for me. He literally experienced death on the de in the deepest way possible on my behalf so that I could have the privilege of experiencing new life through faith in him. Scripture tells us that the righteous penalty for sin is death. And I truly deserve to die. And we truly deserved to die. But Christ was nailed to a cross for me and for you. He had the blood drained from His tortured body for me and for you. He had His lungs filled with fluid as He suffocated on that cross for me and for you. And when I think about that, in light of the things that Christ is stating here in this portion of Scripture, I think, you know, who would do this on behalf of someone else? Who would endure this kind of torture on behalf of somebody else? But when we look at the totality of Scripture and what Scripture reveals to us about the life and ministry of Christ, we discover that Jesus did do this. And He did so because His love for His sheep was that thorough. And that complete. Jesus, when He's speaking these words here, He's not just speaking these things in a casual or flippant way. He backed these words up with sacrificial and selfless action. Jesus laid down His life for His sheep. So He's describing what He's about to do as He's describing Himself as the Good Shepherd in this passage. But something else is He kind of you know, displays what this looks like and some of the, the, the things that will lead up to it. He also shows us that He doesn't flee from the danger that we face. Look at how He phrased things here in John chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. He says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Let's pause there for just a second. We live in an interesting age uh, for, for many reasons, technology being one of them. And because technology is so ready and, and so available and, and, and so uh, prevalent in our day-to-day -day lives, um, 
we, we find our ability to, to gather information or to record things growing exponentially. I mean, at this point, I'm sure that many of us have home security cameras. Uh, I have several uh, at our home. You probably have some. And do you ever find yourself, um, you know, sometimes I think to myself, do I admit this to the church? And then I, I'll find out afterwards a good idea or bad idea. Um, so this is one of those moments. But I have to tell you, you know what really entertains me to watch? Uh, if you go on YouTube and just search some um, security videos where people have been caught in criminal acts, do you ever watch stuff like that? I'm just going to confess to you that I have. And they, they kind of lead down a rabbit trail, and this is what ends up happening. You know, you'll, you'll find a security video, and it'll be at a convenience store somewhere, and you see people come in, and they try and rob the place, and then the people working there respond in one way or another. And uh, it's kind of tense, because as you're watching it, you're thinking, all right, this is real. And, you know, should I watch this? Should I not watch this? Well, of course I watch it, right? And then I end up watching the one that comes after. It's like, oh, another convenience store robbery. Let me watch this one here. Um, but I noticed the difference between people working the register that are getting paid minimum wage and the people that own the store, how they react when someone comes in to rob it. And you could guess what the difference would be. How many of you are going to risk your life if you're being paid minimum wage to defend that register? Probably not too many of us. It's like, you know what? No, I think we're good. I'm just going to step away, let you do your thing, right? But then you see different security videos where someone comes in to like a family business and the owner of that business is there defending the business. They react in a much more uh, authoritative, sometimes much more violent kind of way to that kind of activity. I was thinking about that a little bit in regard to the things that Christ says in the verses that we just read because he said, he's essentially telling us that the same is true, the same principle operates in the shepherding profession. Jesus said here that a hired hand, so somebody that's brought in as a hired hand, they would, be mo they would be most likely to flee when they see a wolf coming. You know, they see a wolf coming, they're, they're probably going to flee. And the reason he flees, a hired hand in the shepherding context, the reason he would flee is he doesn't necessarily have a, a deep love for the sheep or an emotional interest in their well-being. He's hired for a season of time to provide some assistance, to provide some care, but then you have a wolf coming, and the wolf is able to, to scatter the sheep or even devour the sheep because the hired hand isn't as likely to be willing to risk injury to protect them. And likewise, he's certainly not going to lay his life down to protect them. And that's, that's a picture that Jesus is portraying here. We see it, again, play out in our modern context as well. But Jesus also is mentioning this to make it clear that he's not like the hired hand. It's not how he's operating in your life and in my life. He's the exact opposite. When his sheep are threatened, he doesn't flee. He defends. He protects. Christ laid his life down for those who are part of his sheepfold. And by the way, um, this is a portion of Scripture that I think anyone who has aspirations to serve in any form of church leadership should read and take to heart. Uh, in my years of ministry, I have learned, so I've been serving in full-time pastoral ministry since June of 1998. So since June of 1998, I've learned that there are genuine pastors who love Christ's people and have a genuine desire to shepherd Christ's people and consider it a privilege to do so. And they take their role very seriously, and they work very hard at it, and they're very intent at it. 
And then I've discovered others who I think they just serve in the role for a brief period of time, maybe because they either like titles or they're looking for just a a temporary way to earn a paycheck. I don't even know what their motivation would be, but it certainly isn't as as, uh, deep or long-lasting as those that I think have a true shepherd's heart. I'm in the process right now, and some of you know this already if you're on our church leadership team, but I direct a mission board right now. It's called the National Mission Board, and one of the things that we do is we try and help churches get planted. So we're trying to help plant new churches, but we're also trying to help churches that are struggling. And so one of the things that I do with regularity, it seems like it's almost an everyday thing at this point, is uh, I'm screening pastors who are applying to serve at some of these struggling churches that have asked for help from the mission board. And this is a distinction that I try and sniff out when I'm, when I'm trying to screen these guys or when I'm passing information on to our board to try and screen some of these guys. We want to know if the applicant is, going, is applying to that church to work as a hired hand or if his intent is going to, to serve like a shepherd. Meaning, is he going to run the first time there's a sign of trouble or difficulty or stress or uh, criticism, or critique, or he has a hard week, or whatever it may be? Is he going to run? Is he going to crumble the first time any sign of danger comes? Or is he going to stick it out and stay with the church that he's been called to shepherd and defend them from all sorts of of threats or enemies or, or wolves with the power that Christ supplies? And it's a distinction that can be sometimes challenging to sniff out, but this is the type of, of Scripture that I think is very instructive, particularly if somebody thinks, you know, maybe the Lord's calling me to serve in some sort of vocational ministry. Well, great. If He's calling you to serve in some form of vocational ministry, obey His leading, obey His calling, serve as He's calling you to serve. But read this first. And don't go into it with the mindset of the hired hand. Go into it with the mindset of Christ, where you say, I'm going to be a a selfless and sacrificial shepherd Uh, relying on the strength that Christ supplies and not relying on my own strength or giving in to my own fears every time a challenge comes my way. This is also a passage that I think that, that we as Christians in general should rejoice over when we're in the midst of seasons of pain or in the midst of a season of danger. And What I mean by that is this. All of us have gone through seasons of trial of varying degrees. And sometimes when you're going through a season of trial, you get to a spot that feels like a breaking point where you have to admit, in my own strength, this is more than I can bear. This is more than I can bear. I don't have the natural strength to stand strong in the midst of this trial, naturally speaking. And sometimes we go through seasons where, and I I could definitely point to certain seasons in my life where I believe this was the case, where you actually feel like you're under some form of spiritual attack. Where you feel like, all right, this isn't even just like a natural thing. There's got to be some sort of spiritual warfare going on that's, that's clouding this or contributing to this. When we go through these things, I think we can take heart and reassurance when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, because it's, again, a reminder that Christ won't abandon us in the midst of our seasons of difficulty and pain. He's not that kind of shepherd. He's not that kind of leader. He doesn't abandon us in the midst of danger. He doesn't abandon us in the midst of trial. He doesn't abandon us in the midst of pain. As Jesus demonstrated on the cross, He remains with His sheep even at great 
personal cost to himself. And that's the kind of commitment to his people that Jesus is describing in a portion of Scripture like this. And it's a very different kind of commitment than what you see and what I see on met, from many people who like to call themselves leaders in all sorts of spheres. But here you see Jesus saying, you know, effectively, what's he telling us? He's saying, I'm not going to flee when danger comes. I'm not going to flee when ad, ad, adversity comes. When you're in your low seasons, when you're in, your, in the midst of trial, when you're in the midst of danger or peril, I'm not going to bail on you just because you're in the midst of something difficult. That's going to be a moment where I remind you of my presence and my strength even more. Jesus goes on as he continues to build on these thoughts about what it looks like when the good shepherd accomplishes his role. And when you look at verses 14 down to verse 16, it shows us that Jesus knows and unites his family. So you see the strength that Christ is supplying for us as our good shepherd. Look at verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see a pattern there, right? He's trying to convey something that he wants to stick in our minds. He's saying, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in verse 16 he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Did everyone have a good Thanksgiving this week? I forgot to ask a few moments ago. Some of you I had the chance to talk to a little bit earlier. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, many of you know, uh, I, I use this joke all the time. I'll use it again right now. My wife's maiden name is what? You remember? It's Pilgrim, right? So Pilgrim's got a party like it's 1689, right? And that's what happened this week. Uh, you know, for multiple days, her family uh, came down. We got together and did some things on Wednesday. So we, uh, you know, we had meals together on Wednesday, and then we had a lunch on Thursday, and then a dinner on Thursday, and then hangout time on Friday, and then a dinner Friday night, and then a lunch on Saturday. We go hard, all right? Go hard. One of the things that I've noticed on Friday night, and this is our tradition every year, our family goes and we spend that Friday night, the night after Thanksgiving, with Andrea's aunt. And so we did, and I look forward to it. It's, it's very fun. She's very accommodating. And she invites us all over, and so we were over at her aunt's house on Friday evening. And her aunt has a very well-behaved dog. I don't know what breed it is, but it's a bigger dog. Very well-behaved dog named Molly. Now, Molly used to be a little bit more active, but Molly's kind of become really relaxed and, and chill, I've noticed. And I've also noticed that apparently I'm on the short list of Molly's favorite people. Uh, because Molly likes to hang out with me when uh, our family comes and we visit. And this is something else I noticed the other night. A lot of activity, a lot of kids, a lot of noise, you know, people screaming things, yelling things, running around, doing things like that. But if I said Molly's name, and I didn't have to yell it or anything like that, but if I said Molly's name, and I did this twice to her, I'd just kind of look across the room and I'd go, Molly. And I'd see her ears perk up, and she'd walk across the room and sit down at my feet. And, uh, and since I saw she was being so kind and so obedient, I thought, I have to sneak this dog food. I've got to do my part because she's being a real blessing to me right now. I'd be like, Molly. So at one point, the last time I did this to her, I just said, Molly. And she kind of looked at me like, this is where I come over, right? And she, so she walked over, and I was like, I got some dessert for you. And I hooked her up with it. I even held the plate for her so that she could, 
so she could eat it because it was sliding across the floor, and so she did that. But then I noticed a little while afterward, I didn't even say anything. I was just trying to scare children as they went running around the circle of the house. I started as they were coming past me. I just looked like I was being kind and polite. And as they come past me, I just, you know, just kind of snap at them like that to see if I could make them jump. And it was making them jump. But I think it made Molly think I was stressed out. And so Molly comes over to me at one point, and Andrea saw this, and she thought it was really kind of Molly. But Molly did her best to calm me down. Now, I was fake upset at the kids, but Molly comes up to me and she just goes and offered me a paw. <laughs> She's like, here's my paw. And I was like, oh, uh, I think Molly thinks I'm stressed right now. I'm just playing, but okay. I think Molly was stressed because she's like, I hope I don't get stepped on as the train of children kept going around the circle. And then again, she laid down at my feet. And I thought, this dog is wonderful. And I, as I, I left, I felt, you know, I said goodbye to all the family. And then I looked at Molly and I was like, I got to go now, Molly. I got to drive my kids home. It's like, bye. I'll see you next year. I really only see Molly once a year, but we're, we're buds now. But again, it, it, it was very interesting to me to note that I didn't have to say her name very loud. But she was, it was almost like she was ready to hear it. You know, she's ready to hear it. And I just say, Molly. And then she'd just walk across the room in the midst of all that chaos. And she'd be right there at my feet. And when you look at what Jesus describes here in this portion of scripture, he tells us that he's the good shepherd. So now let's think about this in relation to us and Christ. He says here that he's the good shepherd. His sheep know him. And he says, and they listen to his voice. They listen to His voice. When He speaks in the midst of all the chaos, right? His sheep can discern that it's Christ speaking. By the way, this is one of the ways you can tell if you're one of Christ's sheep. You know, Do you listen to His voice? Or do you ignore His voice when He's trying to tell you something? Would you rather Him not speak because He tells you things sometimes you don't want to hear? Or when he speaks, do your ears perk up and you say, okay, my heart is inclined to obey you because I am one of your sheep. Jesus knows his sheep. His sheep know him. And he tells us that this takes place in the same way that the Father and the Son know each other. This is a divinely orchestrated and a divinely facilitated relationship. And this is how his relationship works as good shepherd to his sheep. Now, the original audience that Jesus was speaking these things to as he delivered these words, that original group was Jewish by heritage and by faith. They were Jewish people. But as we well know, there are people of Gentile origin who also have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what he's referring to here in this passage when he tells us about other sheep that are not of this fold. He's saying they too will listen to his voice. And what he's going to do is unite the, the, that flock into one body, that he'd unite his flock into one body with him as the one shepherd. Now that body that Jesus is referencing here, that body is the church. And what Christ is doing is he's uniting Jews and Gentiles into one body. And scripture describes the fact that what Christ is doing is he's, he's tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that once existed between the two. And he makes one body out of the two. I love what we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2 verses 13 and 14, it describes this ministry that Christ is accomplishing, but it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who, you who once were far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the way, that's the essence of reconciliation. So when you take something that's far away and you bring it near. So it's teaching us that Christ has reconciled us to Himself. So it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's what Christ has accomplished, and that's what Jesus was speaking about here in His role of shepherd. He's saying, I have others from, from another flock, and I'm going to make this all one flock. I'm going to unite them with one, you know, one flock, one shepherd. This is what Christ is doing. He knows and He unites His family. And there's one other thing that He brings up in this portion of Scripture from John 10 today that I want us to, to observe, and that's this. Jesus embraced His divine mission. He embraced it. Look at verses 17 and 18 as we wind down. It says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So again, we see Jesus here embracing His divine mission. Christ came to this earth with a mission to fulfill. He wasn't puzzled about it. He wasn't, he wasn't confused about what His objective happened to be. He fully knew that He had come to this earth to lay His life down and then to take it up again. He's going to lay His life down and then take it up again. He would die on the cross. He would rise from death. God the Father commissioned Christ to do this, and Christ did so willingly because He and the Father are one, and all aspects of their will are united. But Christ understood His divinely ordained mission, and He came to this earth and He fulfilled it. Now let's make this personal as we finish up here. Do you believe of yourself, do you believe that you have a divinely ordained mission as well? You know, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you think about the next five years of your life, do you think of yourself as someone who has a divinely ordained mission? Or do you think of other people as having that and not so much yourself? I think sometimes people feel like that's too much of an issue to grasp or too much of a thought to grasp. Or sometimes when I'm talking to people, some, some people uh, that I uh, have spoken to about this very concept seem to indicate that they think they are too insignificant for that to be true of them. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to consider these truths. And I'll reference several portions of Scripture, and you can jot them down if you want to, so you can follow up on this later, and you can see if what I'm telling you is accurate. But consider these truths that Scripture brings up about this idea of us having a divinely ordained mission that's commissioned by Christ. First of all, as we saw in verse 16 of John chapter 10, Jesus has called you unto Himself, and you've responded to His voice. So if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that means Jesus called you unto Himself, and you responded to His voice. We just saw that a moment ago when we read verse 16 of this chapter. He called you, and you responded. How about this? Scripture also tells us that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus has commissioned you to make disciples, teach, and baptize what he tells us in Matthew 28 verses 19 to 20. 
that he has called his people to make disciples, to teach, and to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But a third thing that Scripture reveals to us. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, that you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit with specialized abilities. Again, that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. You have been gifted by the Holy Spirit with specialized abilities. Fourth thing. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Acts 17, verse 26, it tells us that you were born at a specific time in history and you live in a specific location because it fits with God's redemptive plan for humanity. You were born at a specific time and you live in a specific location because it fits with God's redemptive plan for humanity. So think about those things. When you take that together, does that not convey that you also have a, a divinely ordained mission? You, not just somebody else, but you, if you believe in Christ, have a divinely ordained mission. That should be on your mind when you wake up in the morning. It should be on your mind when you go to bed at night. And when you project the next five years of your life, that's something that should be very much on your mind because theologically speaking, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that it's true. Christ embraced His mission. So again, likewise, He's commissioned us, He's gifted us, not merely so we could just observe Him doing His thing, but so we can join Him in what He's doing. He was obedient to the Father's will when He was sent into this world. So as we finish up, just let me ask us this. Will we listen to His voice and be, and be obedient to his, his will as His sent ones who have been called, commissioned, and gifted to glorify Him. The redemptive mission of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, is now your mission as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege to be able to look at these things from Your Word about what it means to, to call You the Good Shepherd and to recognize that this is indeed who you are. This is a role that you make abundantly clear to us is something that, that is how, how you want us to understand your role of leadership and how you operate in our lives. Lord, we're grateful that you've called us unto yourself. We're grateful that you've commissioned us. We're grateful that you've gifted us. We're grateful that we were born when we were born and that we live where we live and we recognize this is all for Your glory. So Lord, thank You for these truths. Thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for Your love. And we pray that as You sacrificially serve us, that we would serve others for Your glory and in Your name. Lord, we're grateful that as Your Word tells us that You laid down Your life for Your sheep. We pray that we would go through each day that You have blessed us with with an appreciation for the fact that you did so, so that we could live. You laid down your life, you died on our behalf so that we could live through faith in you. We pray, Lord, that this would be something that we would rejoice over. We pray that we would be grateful for it. We, pr we pray, Lord, that we would rely on your strength and your power and your presence in every context that we find ourselves in. So thank you for being our good shepherd. 
And thank you for revealing these things to us from your word today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.